Uh, so welcome everyone and uh, thank you for joining us at Trisha and uh, for joining the second session of Dr. Yadida Koren's class um, on uh, rabbinic traditions of personal behavior, a new window into halakha. Um, you know, as usual, uh, any questions that come up uh, during the class can be put in the chat or we'll take breaks and, uh, you know, or at the end, uh, we'll be able to address those things and yeah, you'll be able to unmute and ask whatever questions. Um, okay, so let's get started. Thank you. Amazing, so thank you. Um, and uh, I don't know exactly how you do this, but um, I'm sure Maxine does. And uh, I encourage people who are, here but not necessarily signed in as panelists uh, to sign in as panelists um, so that way I can see you. Um, okay so let's uh, I'm just gonna remind us about uh, um, the topic rabbinic traditions of personal behavior. Um, in what I showed last week and what I spoke about last week is that in um, uh, the Talmud and in rabbinic literature, both the Bavli and the Yerushalmi and the Mishnah and the Tosefta, there are hundreds of uh, small, brief, sometimes longer um, traditions that describe a personal behavior, a personal habit uh, of a rabbi. Um, and uh, they reveal a rich culture of examining and observing um, uh, not only, it's much more than the behavior of rabbis, it's really their, their, their hand movements, their body language, their body functions, um, just the way they carry themselves in the world. Um, and this is all um, uh, brought in context of discussions of halacha. Um, Sometimes it's a proof or precedent, but many other times it's, it's just a discussion about a certain, what a certain rabbi did in this context of the halacha that they're talking about. Um, and the minutia also reveal, provide a different window to thinking about what is halacha. That halacha, in many ways, and through these uh, traditions, halacha is about minutia. Um, it's about the small habits. It's about um, uh, small things that we will not call the oraita. It's not something from the Torah, and we would might not even call it rabbanan, as we'll see soon. Um, like some rabbinic um, uh, rule or law, but they're they're even smaller than that, uh, and they're so important um, to the rabbis. Um, and uh, they really are, uh, in a sense, part of the fabric of their, of their lives, part of the fabric of, um, of just their day-to-day -day, um, uh, behavior and way of life. Um, so if there are any uh, questions uh, from last week, uh, people who were here, people who uh, watched it afterwards, um, you're welcome to ask. Um, I'm going to uh, start by framing what we're going to do this week, um, and uh, but really feel free to raise your hand, and I'll, I'll pause a few times uh, during uh, this uh, hour, but um, feel free to write in the chat or, 
raise your hand and um, and we'll get to it. Um, so I called the source sheet, I called today's topic uh, uh, Rabbinic Traditions of Personal Behavior, Critique and the Yearning. Um, and in a sense, I mean, they're, I present them as oppositions. They don't have to be oppositions uh, entirely, um, but uh, they bring different voices or uh, just different modes of uh, why are rabbis even looking or how are they even looking at the behavior of other rabbis? Um, with through what kinds of eyes are they looking at the um, other rabbis' behavior? Um, uh, and today, it's mostly we're going to focus on uh, um, within the traditions themselves. The traditions are going to contain short, uh, short stories. Um, last week, we saw how the um, not only the rabbis, the named rabbis observing the rabbi uh, are critiquing or discussing, but also the Gemara afterwards discusses and critiques the behavior of the rabbis that is recorded. Um, this time we're going to focus on the stories themselves. Um, um, and, uh, and through these different uh, stories, we'll see sometimes also, it, it brings us a wider range of the types of dynamics or hierarchies that are at play when rabbis are observing each other. Um, sometimes it's students observing their teacher. In those cases, there's also critique. Um, uh, it's not uh, necessarily that if students observe their teacher, there's no critique. Um, and in many other cases, it is a rabbi observing another rabbi of the same, uh, of the same generation, so those students of the same sages. Uh, and then there are many more cases of, uh, of critique. Um, and also uh, rabbis observing their students. And then as well, there might be more cases of uh, of critique or chastising. I, th I think, I mean, I use critique, but we can think about uh, uh, different, different formulations for this. It's not, it's not always critique. Maybe sometimes it's chastising, but, and sometimes it's questioning, or sometimes it's, um, it can be many different things. And I'm just raising this so we think about this together, or you think about this alongside. Um, um, so uh, we're going to start with uh, some uh, Tanaitic cases uh, that are not the most common. As I said, um, uh, but just the vast majority, I said this last week, I think, but the vast majority of traditions are about Amoraim. Um, but there are uh, uh, still several um, in uh, Tanaitic literature, and uh, they already raised different kinds of dynamics among the rabbis through their examination and observation of, um, of each other's uh, behavior. Um, so uh, the first uh, example, uh, this is uh, source Aleph on the sheets. Let me share my screen. Um, okay, there's something in the chat. Okay, um, So the first example is a Mishnah from the beginning of Masachet Brachot, the very beginning. Uh, some of you might have learned it before. 
Uh, and uh, it gives us a, an example of a tradition of personal behavior that is brought in the first person. Uh, it's not a rabbi observing a different rabbi, but rather a rabbi reporting their own personal behavior. Um, and this is then examined and critiqued by the rabbis around him. This is also then, as always, anything that's recorded in rabbinic literature this implies that subsequent rabbis also studied this and then uh, recorded this and then that it was studied uh, um, by rabbis of later generations and, um, uh, and of course, uh, until today. Um, okay, so this is in the context. We're not, and every time we're going to see an example, each time it's about a different halachic uh, issue, we're going to quickly... Um, uh, just mention the halachic issue and uh, and go into the example. So this is in the context of a, of a machloket, a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, which position a person needs to take when they say Kriyat Shema. Um, so Beit Shammai says in the evening, uh, uh, you read Shema um, lying down, and in the morning you read Shema standing up, like the words in the verse itself, um, so um, they read this in a literal sense, almost. Um, and Beit Hillel say, no, every person just reads as, as they were in whatever position they were. Um, and then we have a, a self-testimony by Rabbi Telfon saying a case that he did, something that he did. Amar Rabbi Telfon, ani ha'yiti baba derech ve'yitetti likorot kedivrei Beit Shammai. So Rabbi Talfon says, I um, was, uh, was on, the, on the road um, in my travels, and uh, it, he inclined to reach Shema. It was evening, it was nightfall, and he, um, and he reclined to say Shema, like the position of Beit Shammai, and he put himself in danger. Um, uh, in a sense, it seems that he's telling the other sages, how great his actions were, how great he was that he put himself in this danger um, because he wanted to follow the position of Beit Shem. Um, so this is also goes into not only a question of uh, how much should one put oneself in danger in order to keep mitzvot, or uh, not to keep mitzvot, but a specific, um, in a sense, uh, just a specific execution of the mitzvah, right? He could have said Shema, he just wanted to do it especially and um, be scrupulous about it. Um, but also it goes into a question of should the rabbis, should we, should the rabbis be um, performing uh, according to uh, uh, the position of the house of Shammai or the position of the house of Hillel? Um, and uh, so the response of the sages to Rabbi Tarfon's um, uh, self-testimony is uh, very harsh. And they tell him uh, that you were worthy, you deserved to, to die. You deserved to, um, uh, to be liable to pay with your life because you um, transgressed the position of Beit Hillel, of the house of Hillel. Um, so there seems to be a, a disconnect in the, in the basic assumptions of Rabbi Talfon and the other sages. 
um, uh, what is the proper mode of behavior also in the context of mitzvot and danger, also in the context of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Um, here, here we have one of the, uh, uh, the first examples of uh, uh, tradition of personal behavior and other rabbis uh, cri criticizing the rabbi for, for um, their behavior um, and in a very harsh way. Um, the other example uh, that's connected to uh, reading Shema um, uh, that I brought is in the Tosefta, is source Gimel uh, here. And here the critique is much less harsh. Um, and the context is uh, the timing of reciting Shema in the morning. Um, and here we have a different kind of dynamic. In the previous case, we had Rabbi Tarfon, and he was telling about himself, and the sages were anonymous. And those were the ones who were critiquing and criticizing him. And it seems that they were his peers. Here, um, the rabbi telling the, the situation is Rabbi Yehuda, and he's talking about, he's telling about uh, two of his two, his two masters, his two teachers. Um, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elazar ben Azar. Um, so the mitzvah of Shema, the Tosefta uh, states, uh, is to recite Shema um, in the morning with the budding of the sun, Um, Because when you, if you say it with Hanetzachama, then um, uh, you can uh, then right after that uh, recite Shmon uh, and uh, when you combine them together, um, it's considered uh, it's considered a better way to perform both mitzvot. Um, however, um, uh, then we have a, a story, a short story given by Rabbi Yehuda. Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Pam chat ha'iti me'alech achar Rabbi Akiva ve'achar Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Higi azman kriyat shema. Kim dumani shenitiyashu milikrot. Ela sheoskin b'tzorchei tzibur. So the situation is that we have two teachers and their student who's walking behind them. Um, and these, these traditions also put to life uh, dynamics between, between rabbis and students and how they carry themselves. So here we see that um, the teachers are in front, the student is in back. And um, it's time to reach Shema, but the rabbis, the teachers, they're not, they're not saying it. Um, and uh, we can kind of imagine what Rabbi Yudha might be thinking. Um, so he tells us, I was certain that they gave up. They, they, I don't know exactly how to read this. Does Rabbi Yudha think that they, they forgot? Does he think that they were not going to, that uh, they, they um, decided not to? And, and this is connected to the fact that they were um, dealing with the public affairs. Um, and we don't know exactly what these public affairs were, if it was connected to tzedakah, if it was connected to something else. Is this the reason that they delayed the Shema? Is this the reason that Rabbi Yudha thought that they didn't have to say Shema? It seems that there is some kind of negative reaction or, or surprise on his um, part that he says, 
doesn't seem entirely neutral. Um, and he says about himself, Kariti, I recited Shema Vishaniti. And um, uh, perhaps this means that he also studied his studies, uh, his Mishnayot, or I mean, not his, his Mishnah as a, as a work, but perhaps he recited traditions. Um, or this could mean that he recited Shema again, Kariti Vishaniti, I repeated. Um, and only after that they started. And the sun, it wasn't budding anymore. It was at the tops of the mountains. This was uh, pretty late in the morning. Um, and only then did, these, did his two teachers um, start reciting the um, and, uh, and we're just left, uh, what I like about this example, we're just left with this uh, picture. Um, uh, it's not developed. Uh, and we can start to think, what did, how did Rabbi Yehuda, what did he think when he saw that they did, did recite Shema? Do you think that this whole problem was resolved? Was it not resolved for, as far as he was concerned? Um, but uh, it, it, it seems that uh, he's, not, uh, um, uh, he's not looking at them uh, in admiration. Uh, um, and also this case is brought... Uh, in kind of in contrast to the halacha itself that you need to recite Shema with Hanitza um, uh, Okay, now we're going to delve into uh, the next source we're going to see is a series of three cases um, that are connected to uh, Rabban Gamliel. And uh, these three cases uh, reveal uh, Rabban Gamliel as every single time acting against the, the proper halacha. And every single time his students question his actions, um, and every single time he doesn't respond by saying, by, by correcting them, or by saying, no, this is, I am doing the proper halacha. Rather, he's saying why he's unique and why he's doing something that is different um, from uh, the proper halakha is acknowledging that he's deviating from proper halakha. He's giving justification for his devi deviation, sometimes more justification and sometimes less. Um, and, uh, and again, there's a lot of ambiguity here uh, as to what to do with these traditions of personal behavior of Rabban Gamliel. Is he an example? Is he, um, is he uh, um, actually kind of an exclusion to the general rule. And what does it mean when such a great rabbi actually acts in a unique exclusion to the rule? Um, what are we left with as what is the role model? What is, what is the proper way, mode of behavior? Um, and especially in the, in the reasons that he gives. Um, so the three cases are, one, uh, this is hey, uh, a groom is is exempt from reciting Shema on the first on the the first few nights after his wedding, um, but Rabban Gamliel recited Shema the very night that he married, um, and his students say to him, "You yourself taught us." something different from what you are doing. Um, that 
a, a groom is exempt from reciting Shema on the first night. And so he answers to them in a very interesting way. He says, I won't listen to you. I will not, I will not um, let you, um, uh, in a sense, uh, um, translation is to preclude myself from the yoke of the kingdom of heaven for even one moment. Um, uh, this is an, a, a, an interesting dynamic that's going on here because it was Rabban Gamliel himself who taught them the proper halakha, but suddenly Rabban Gamliel is treating it as if his students are the ones who are preventing him from fulfilling his desire to read Shema. And, um, and his desire to read Shema doesn't go in accordance with halakha. So there's discussion after this in the, in the, in the Gemara. Um, did, how, what was the justification for this? Why did Rabban Gamliel um, uh, um, think that he should? Um, can other people do this as well? Um, and we're left with uh, a lot of question marks. Um, and uh, the next example, also very intriguing, Zayn, Rachatz, Laila Harishon Shemeta Ishto. So bathed, Rabban Gamaliel bathed the first night that his wife died. And he was in mourning. He should definitely not have bathed in, in mourning, and especially not on the first night. Um, and again, his students say, you yourself taught us that someone in mourning should not be. And his answer here is again, I am unique, but here he has uh, a category that he puts himself in, or it becomes a halachic category in a sense. I am not like other people. I am delicate. I am Istenis is uh, kind of a, a, a word from Greek that uh, it can mean uh, um, uh, delicate, easily grossed out, I would say, in colloquial. Um, so, so what does it mean that Rabban Gamliel is not like, uh, like everyone else? Um, uh, that he needs to bathe. So everyone else is prohibited to bathe, but the rabbi, needs to bathe, um, uh, and perhaps, so, so is Rabban Gamliel unique because he's the Nasi, um, uh, he's the, like the um, patriarch, um, is he uh, unique just because of his uh, personal just inclination? Um, what about what about other people? When can they? When can when can regular people? When can Shal Koladam use this uh, justification of being um, delicate to deviate themselves from uh, other mitzvot? Um, um, or can who can is is can just anyone say that they are listenies that they are delicate? Uh, so these are all questions, but what the, the story in the, in the Mishnah just leaves all of these question marks. Um, so uh, so I, I'm not sure if, uh, how we should read the, the way the students are, are looking at Rabban Gamliel. Are they looking at him? Are they, are they asking him with criticism? Is this critique? Is this criticism? Is this just shock, amazement? 
uh, curiosity, um, uh, and we can we can uh, suggest all of these uh, possibilities. I think, um, and then we're not going to do the, the last example. Um, I'm going to skip to Yud uh, Aleph, um, which is in the Bavli. We're jumping to the Bavli, but um, uh, and after this example, I'm going to pause for maybe some uh, remarks or questions. Um, and uh, this is in Sugya. We saw it last week, which is connected to uh, this one we actually skipped over. Um, uh, a very important halachic question. <laughs> Can you spit during davening? Um, and uh, um, this was actually uh, an important issue in the... Uh, um, uh, not only for the Gemara, but also uh, even in the 19th century, there are discussions about spitting during davening. Um, and uh, um, what happens, so you're not allowed to spit during davening, that's basically, don't spit during davening. Um, but what do you do if you have to anyway? What do you do if uh, this kind of spit accumulates in your mouth and, and what do you do? What are you supposed to do with it? Um, and you don't want to swallow it presumably, um, or you're permitted to not swallow. We'll grant you that. So, um, so the statement in the Gemara is uh, by Rav Yehuda, that if you're standing at prayer and you have suddenly spit accumulating in your mouth, you cannot spit it to the ground because that would be an act of um, just... Uh, um, a lack of respect um, to Hashem, uh, to prayers. Um, so what you're supposed to do is kind of uh, put it, like remove it with your, with your uh, clothing, with your garment. But if you have a nice garment, you use your head covering um, um, to uh, use to remove your skin. Uh, however, the case that we have here goes against the uh, theoretical halacha. Uh, Ravina, and we're jumping many generations from Rabban Gamliel um, to Ravina and Ravashi, who are at the end of the time of the Amorayim in Babel. Ravina Avakai, Chorei Ravashi, Nizdamen lo rok, Patkei la Chorei, Amar Oh, wait, let's, okay, so I'm going to stop here. Um, so Ravina was standing behind Rav Ashi. And um, the translator uh, um, says that it's uh, Ravina who had the spit, but perhaps it could have been also been Rav Ashi, according to the story, it's unclear. But one of them had a, a spit in their mouth. And, um, and uh, right, yeah, it makes sense that it's Ravina because he's standing behind Ravashi and then he spits it behind him, so close to Ravina. Um, and so uh, Ravina is in shock, uh, I think. And he says, um, uh, he says to Ravashi, how, how could you just spit like that in the middle of Dominic? Amar savar lamar leha de Ravyuda mavli'o 
So do you not have the, the statement of Rav Yehuda, who was several generations before them, um, that if you have spit in the middle of davening, you should put it in your, in your head covering? Um, and the answer is, Amarle ana anina datai. I have uh, delicate, I have delicate, uh, um, delicate mindset. Oh, I'm delicate kind of person. Um, and in a sense, it's a similar, uh, similar explanation to being an Eastanese. It's a similar kind of using of category. Um, great chaya, I'm gonna get to you in a moment. Um, and uh, and so he's saying. I won't, right? He doesn't want to put the spit in his garment. He doesn't want to put the spit in his uh, head covering. Uh, he spits it behind him because it's just too gross for him. He needs to spit during davening. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of a halachic argument that in a sense, it's like a joker card. We didn't even know this was possible to claim. Um, when is it possible for someone to claim that they are, Anina they're in Eastern. Um, yeah, Chaya. I'm just curious what that word Anina is, it like, or like what other words are connected to it, just because I'm having trouble placing it. Like, is that, what does that word mean on its own? Would it, like, would there be a different context that I'd be more familiar with it? Um, great question. I, um, um, I mean, I think, top of my head, I think it uh, comes together in the, in the expression Nina uh, Datai. Um, but uh, I can look this up in just a moment. Um, it's it's uh, not necessary. If, if I was just wondering if it was like a yeah, like yeah. Thing, don't, no, it's don't fine. I, I wrote to myself that I needed to look this up in the dictionary, and then I did not get a chance before class because it is an, a curious phrase. Um, but uh, I'll check it and I'll uh, let you know. I'll let you know later. Um, but yeah, thanks for raising this. Um, okay, so just right. So to sum this up of the. Uh, this issue of Anina uh, Datai or Istanis, um, the rabbis seem to be uh, using a halachic argument that, um, that it's unclear how people, how this can serve as a role model for others, right? how people can use this and apply this in their own lives when. Is it possible to claim Anina Datai? Um, uh, Azi Orbach. Could it mean I am poor at mind? Sometimes I am Anina Datai. Interesting. Um, uh, perhaps uh, I am going to. I mean, delicate. Okay, this is from uh, the Sokolov Dictionary. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Michael Sokolov. Uh, has an excellent dictionary for both Babylonian and another one for Palestinian Aramaic. Uh, and he explains Anin as delicate, 
only in the phrase aninagatai. Uh, and he translated as fastidious, um, which perhaps uh, I would need to look up in an English dictionary. Um, but uh, maybe this, uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, oh, I should have done a teaching moment and shared my screen with you, but never mind. Okay. Uh, okay. So, okay. Any comments on this issue of Istanis or Aninut, uh, Aninadatai? Um, before we continue to the other examples. Okay, great. Uh, so if anything comes up later on, you're always welcome to ask. Okay. Um, uh, and the next set of examples that I brought is uh, examples of colleagues who are um, criticizing each other's uh, behavior during meals um, or with together, the, the setting is always pretty similar. They're either sitting together at a meal or one comes to the other one's home and they're together at the home and they uh, mess up. <laughs> Um, they do something that seems wrong, um, uh, and and their colleague uh, criticizes them for this, chastises them for this, um, and these examples can show they're all treated as halacha, um, but they just show us how broad what halacha is can be. Um, and my this first example, I just I love it because in English, when we translate it into English, it just we realize how much this is. Um, I don't know. I think this is just uh, just uh, I would never think about this as halacha. When we know the Gemara, we realize that these are parts of halacha, but this is central and important to the rabbis that they criticize each other for. Their, their behavior, and this is treated as something that is against Tacha. Um, so there's a Braita. It starts with a Braita. Um, so there are four rules about bread. And one of them is that we don't throw bread. This is Alacha. We don't throw bread. Okay. But then we have a story. So Amema, Marzutra, and Rav Ashi ate together, and uh, they brought before them uh, dates and pomegranates. So Marzutra threw a pomegranate to Rav Ashi. He tossed him a pomegranate. but Rav Ashi is in shock. He said, but don't you hold the position or the, the braita, the teaching, the tainetic teaching, that we're not allowed to throw food? Um, so he answers, or the Gemara answers, no, that, that rule, that braita, that teaching, was only about bread. We're not supposed to throw bread, um, but we can throw uh, other food. Um, but we have another brighter. 
that teaches us that just as we do not throw bread, we do not throw food. Um, and, but he said to them, but, but he said to him, but there's a different light. There's a different teaching. It teaches us that even though we're not allowed to throw bread, we are allowed to throw other food. And this could be either the Gemara, or there seems to be kind of a um, uh, um, blurring between uh, the rabbinic discussion in the story and the Talmudic discussion afterwards. So you're not allowed to throw food if it can become disgusting, but you are allowed to throw food if it will not become disgusting. Um, and uh, so, as I said, I think what I like about this is that um, in Aramaic, it sounds uh, it it sounds like uh, um, like any other kind of brayta. But when we think about, in a sense, the hal- this halacha, in a sense, is about table manners, um, and that how extensive halacha really is. How extensive brightot are that there are brightot Tanaitic teachings, not only about how to recite Shema or how to recite other brachot, but there are mamash Tanaitic teachings about table manners and how to treat food, and that too is not. There's no differentiation, and it's treated like halacha, just as we would treat um, uh, what uh, language should one use for birkat Amazon, as we'll see. Um, and uh, or the order of brachot, um, uh, they're all treated in the same as as halacha. They're all halacha. Um, uh, they're all proper behavior and practice that uh, that uh, rabbis see as binding, um, and they expect each other to behave in accordance with that. Um, okay. So we're going to see just, I think we'll see, I brought a few of these uh, stories and each one kind of, each one ends in a different sort of way. I'll do, I'll do uh, one more um, and then I'll summarize the others to skip to the next uh, section. Um, so the, the other one uh, um, that I'll, uh, Maybe we'll just do the next one. Um, yeah, let's just do the next one. I, I mean, it's hard for me to. I like all of them. That's why I brought them. So, uh, so uh, let's just do the next one, and then I can summarize the other ones. Uh, so uh, it starts with there's there's a story within a story, and this actually a, a story within a story, and then another tradition within this larger story, which is why. I, one of the reasons why I like it. Uh, so the, the background story is Rabbi Zera and Rav Chista. And Rabbi Zera tells Rav Chista, um, come, sir, and, and teach. Uh, and he's asking uh, Rav Chista to teach him. Um, uh, but Rav Chista feels uh, incompetent that day. He has the imposter syndrome. Um, he says, apparently, I do not even know how to say Birkat Amazon. How could I possibly teach you? 
He says, what is this? Why, why do you think you don't know Birkat Amazon? So I came to, and this is this is the story within the broader story. So the smaller is the current the story within is again a situation of a meal. Um, and Rav Chista was in the home of the exilarch, Reish Galuta. Um, and he was given the honor of saying Birkat Amazon, Brichi Birkat Amazon. He said Birkat, I was, I was benching for everyone. And Rav Sheshet got so mad. Um, I, I don't know, we can think about the, the emotion or how to formulate this, but he um, stretched his neck. Literally what's, what's told here is that he stretched his neck on me, upon me like a snake. Rav Sheshet was just, completely critical maybe he seems as if he even like um uh used his venom at him um he stretched his neck of sheshet stretched his neck on of why because when i did birkat amazon when i led birkat amazon i did not mention brit which we say as brit and not torah and not Malchut, he didn't say anything about Beit David, um, which are for our Birkat Amazon, right? They're key, they're key pieces to Birkat Amazon, these, these topics that you need to mention. Um, but what this reflects is, uh, and, and there are different positions in the Gemara as to what are the important elements of Birkat Amazon, what needs to be mentioned in Birkat Amazon. And Rav Chista seems to not have mentioned any of these elements um, in his Birkat uh, Amazon. Um, so why did he not say any? Why did you not say any of these elements? So he explains. And what's interesting? So he says, I didn't say them because of what Rav Chananel said in the name of Rav. Um, but what's interesting is that there is a distinction here between different versions of the Gemara. In some versions, it's brought as a statement that Rav says, it's okay if you do not say uh, the covenant and Torah and the kingdom of David and Malchut. But in other versions, it's that Rav himself, it's bringing another tradition of personal behavior that Rav himself, in his Birkat Amazon, would not say, not Brit, not Torah, and not Malchut. He wouldn't say any of these. And so Rav Chista was merely imitating or emulating Rav. Brit, There's no need to say, Brit because women do not have this. And Torah Malchut, because women or slaves are not obligated. Um, and they cannot be kings. Um, and therefore, he thought it wasn't necessary to say any of these elements in his Birkat And the response is, by Rabbi Zera, in, this, in our background story, Rabbi Zera is shocked. And he says to Rav Chista, shavakt kol hanei tanai You abandoned 
You set aside all of the other Tanaim and Amoraim who all say that you need to say Brit, Torah, and Malchut in order to fulfill your obligation of Birkat Amazon. And you um, practiced according to Rav. How, why, how could you? Um, and so what I like about this tradition, I have several things that I like about it, but one of the things that I like about it is that we have uh, uh, a, the inner story, right? The, the story within is Rav Sheshit stretching his neck like a snake at the moment that this is happening. And then in the background story, we suddenly have, again, a take two of critique for, it's, for Rav Chistai, as if it's not enough that he experienced the first time that Rav Shesht was criticizing him, but now Rav Izeira is criticizing him again, just when he retells the story. Um, I mean, he must just feel terrible <laughs> if we think about um, this. Um, um, or kind of, it's portraying a, a, a harsh critique, a double harsh critique, at the moment itself, and then in the after, in the after fact, when just in the retelling of the story, again there's this harsh critique, um, and within it we have this lone tradition about Rav, who actually himself probably did not, or according to the tradition, did not say Brit Torah and Malchut, um, and uh, um, Rabbi Zera, who's actually asking Avchista to teach him, is also criticizing him. Um, so we have critique of peers. We even have a critique of a student towards uh, their uh, teacher. Um, or maybe it's not, again, we don't necessarily have to call it critique. We can call it shock. We can call it amazement. Um, uh, but, but this isn't admiration. Rabbi's behavior is looked at not only in admiration, not only as a source for emulating, but it's, it's studied, it's examined, it's also questioned, put into question. Um, and, uh, and, and rabbis uh, are not, they're, they're, they're not inhibited at all at, at harshly questioning the behavior of other rabbis. Um, and then uh, we always need to remember that this is then also recorded, brought in the Bavli as something that the rabbis of the Babli, the sages of the Babli, um, uh, study themselves afterwards. Um, so um, um, the other examples, they're similar in their kind of setting and in their flow, um, but each one has a different kind of outcome and a different kind of, uh, sometimes different kind of reaction. In um, in Yudzain, in this in this, and you're welcome to study them afterwards. Um, uh, Rav Papa um, uh, blesses the oil and the uh, myrtle bush in the wrong order. He was supposed to first bless the oil, and then the myrtle bush, but um, but he blesses the myrtle bush and only the myrtle branch, and only then the oil. And this is against um, the halakha that, uh, that seems to have been uh, uh, decided in the Baraita. Um, and Rav Huna Breit Rav Ika challenges him on his behavior. Uh, and Rav Papa responds 
what the Gemara explains in Papa's response by saying, no, Rava said that the halacha is actually the way I did, the way I behaved. The Gemara says in its bottom line, this is not true, that Rav Papa in a sense invented. Rav Papa, basically, according to the Gemara, Rav Papa invented a halacha just so he could um, excuse himself from this really uncomfortable situation of being criticized. Um, and, then, uh, and then the other example that I brought, uh, the last example of this kind of type, uh, is of a rabbi uh, uh, examining how another um, uh, uh, Rabbi Barmari examines how Rava um, blesses the wine, and he um, he says to him, Yisha, like Yisha Koach, right? He says to him, well done. Um, and so this is a twist. Instead of uh, criticizing his actions, he's actually uh, complimenting him. Um, and we see how this kind of situation, it's kind of once we know the setting or once we know the genre, the type of uh, story, so we're waiting to see something is going to happen. Like someone comes to someone else's house. Someone sees someone else do something. Um, there's going to be a reaction to this behavior. Um, more often, it's critique but, or, or just challenging, chastising. But in this case, actually, it, uh, it ends well. He says, well done. And this is also how um, Rabbi Yushua said it needs to be done. Um, and so uh, um, the examination, the examination is there in, in both cases. The, the way that the rabbis examine each other and pay close attention to how uh, they behave. Um, and uh, well, we're just going to skip Kaf Aleph, but it's short, you can see it afterwards. Um, so I wanna see, maybe we'll end, I, we'll skip, uh, perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll skip the yearning. I do want to see um, uh, a case. Maybe we'll get to the yearning in our last five minutes. Um, uh, in Kaf um, this is in the Yerushalmi. Uh, this is a case of, uh, of students uh, attacking almost their teacher for being overly stringent. Um, uh, and this is in the context of uh, saying the bracha esh on the fire in Havdalah. Um, there are different criteria for how far away can you be from the fire and still make the bracha. Um, you need to enjoy the light of the fire, but how, how, how much exactly do you need to enjoy it? So there are theoretical statements um, that uh, it needs to be a light that women can spin their wool uh, to it, or it needs to be enough light so that uh, someone could see what is in the cup or the bowl, or to tell between um, the difference between different coins. Um, and then there's a very uh, lenient uh, position by Breita uh, that's brought by Tani Rabbi Yoshaya. Rabbi Yoshaya says, even if it is an enormous hall of 10 by 10, you can uh, make the bracha for the fire. However, then we have uh, a case that happened 
that Rabbi Zeira uh, actually did not uh, uh, follow any of these, and he went close to the light. He, when he want, when he said Borei Meolan Esh, he went he went close to the candle. And his students said, Why are you Why are you? So the um, Guggenheimer translated, uh, why does our teacher make it so difficult for us? We could say maybe, uh, why are you being stringent upon us? But in a sense, if you, if the students are aware that what Rabbi Zeirat does, they will probably have to, or need to, or feel a desire to, feel driven to. It's unclear what they are exactly, what their assumption is here, but they do not, but they oppose Rabbi Zera um, being machmir, being stringent in the situation. You should not, and the students are saying, master, don't do this to us. Um, don't be machmir. Um, uh, we learn in the Brayta that Rabbi Yoshaya, like we learn Rabbi Yoshaya um, taught in the Brayta, even if it's a hall of 10 by 10, we can make the bracha on the fire. So please don't be overly stringent on us. Don't be more stringent than, the, than what we learn. Um, and so like, and this kind of reminds us of the case, reminds me of the case of Rabban Gamliel and his students. Only um, in the case of Rabban Gamliel and his students, his students are shocked that the rabbi is not following this, I don't know if lenient is the, is the term, but he's deviating from the, from the taught, from the known halacha. And also here Rabbi Zerah is deviating from the known halacha, but but we wouldn't think that this were a problem for a rabbi to want to come near the flame and not say it from a distance. And yet the students acknowledge that this is a problem for them if their rabbi comes near the flame and doesn't say the bracha from a distance. Um, and uh, it reflects the, the effect that a rabbi's behavior has um, for their students. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments in the meantime also about the, the meals stories and uh, or about this? Welcome to ask me now. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just wondering um, at what point uh, those kinds of rules about, um, you know, table manners and just uh, how um, people conduct themselves that way. When did that start to kind of become less emphasized and fall away? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, I would say that in some circles, uh, this is all observed, even today. Um, that would be my guess. Um, uh, in some religious circles, Jewish religious circles, this probably is all observed. Uh, um, uh, and my guess is that most of this is, uh, we could find it in the Shulchan Aruch. Um, there are some, some, actually it's bathroom manners, that there's also a whole section in bathroom manners. And, um, and that, there's a stage in which, uh, or even like what direction should the bathroom be 
Um, uh, and that there's uh, in, the, in the time of Rishonim, the Middle Ages, um, where some say we don't need to do this anymore. I mean, there are different stages of different kinds of halachot. It's not always the manner. Sometimes it's even like um, uh, reclining in uh, Pesach Seder. There's an argument of whether or not uh, in Rishonim, if this is necessary, if this is necessary. Um, so uh, so it, 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 it can be even things that we might think are more core to what halacha is, um, that uh, there start to be discussions if this is relevant or necessary today. Um, uh, but uh, it's uh, a good question. I, I, I assume that there are, uh, uh, there's writing about and discussions about it uh, um, among uh, contemporary rabbis. Um, but there was, I think, uh, also discussion about these, not these issues and similar issues also, uh, even uh, in the time of the Rishon. Um, okay, we have uh, one minute. So I'm gonna just end with a moment of, uh, of yearning because we saw this critique. I felt like I wanted to bring I mean, if I just brought cases of yearning, then could have would have been a little more flat. Um, but I do feel that uh, to counterbalance or balance out the, all the cases of critique, there are also uh, cases in which we see that rabbis are really yearning to know or just rejoice in the small tidbit that they hear about what a certain rabbi did. Um, and this, if we jump to Kaftet, and we'll end with this. Um, uh, this is in the Rushalmi. No, so it's not Kaftet, it's Kafzain. There is an after, there's an epilogue in Kaftet in the Bible, which is interesting to see. You can see that afterwards on your own. But if we look at Kafzain, um, this is out about how to bow in Shmonesa. Um, something we do So Hanan Barba says to the colleagues or the other fellow rabbis, I will tell you a good thing, a good deed, a good um, story that I saw Rav do. Here, I just want to emphasize the, this term of seeing, which is, appears a lot. And I told it to Shmuel, and he got, stood up and he kissed me on my mouth. He was so excited to hear this tidbit. This, or it, for him, it probably wasn't a tidbit. For us, it might seem like a tidbit. Baruch ata shokhe, ba'ala azkir et Hashem, zokef. So when he says, Baruch Atah, he um, uh, bows down. And when he comes to say uh, the name of God, he um, straightens up. And um, that is what Rav used to do. That was Rav's personal practice. Hanan Barbas would see Rav do this. He was a student of Rav. He told it to Shmuel, and Shmuel was so rejoiceful he kissed him on his mouth. Um, and, and it's interesting, we can think about the symbolism of the seeing, the mouth, the retelling, I don't know. 
why he kissed him on his mouth. Um, or just maybe this was habit of the way they kissed. Um, and uh, it reveals, so it reveals a rejoicing in, in finding out what a rabbi did. Um, it also reveals a yearning to know the small ways in which, the small habits in which uh, rabbis and colleagues, Shmuel is a colleague of love, um, uh, performed, uh, performed mitzvot, performed halacha. Um, so not only critique, but also uh, uh, true yearning. And, um, and the combination of everything together is just also what's so fascinating in my eyes of, um, of these traditions. Uh, so if there are any questions, uh, you're welcome to ask now. And um, uh, if you have any questions afterwards, uh, you're also welcome to write uh, to Drisha, they have my email address, um, and uh, next week I'll try to remember to put it on the source sheet. Um, but uh, thank you for coming, and uh, looking forward to learning with you next week um, in our final session. Thank you. Looking forward. And uh, thank you everyone also uh, for coming to uh, tonight's class and hopefully we'll see you um, next week uh, or before then. We have lots of other classes going on too. Um, so until then, thanks. <laughs>